invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20 and beginning in verse 41. I'm delighted to consider these truths with you. I think you'll find it helpful to have a copy of God's Word out in your lap. We will be going, as is our custom, verse by verse this morning, considering God's Word. My kids kind of pulled out this uh, sermon sheet and saw the outline and gasped. Um, so um, don't fret. Um, we'll move quickly through these things, um, and uh, we'll be out by dinner time, no problem. Uh, so we are in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 41. Hear now the word of God. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Our Father, we are thankful this morning that we can gather together as Your people and that we can consider Your Word. What a great honor it is, once again, to come and hear You speak to us through Your Scripture. And so let that happen today. Speak to us and allow us to hear your truth that we might conform our lives more to the image of Christ and live for his glory. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature had a joint meaning. According to Kent Hughes, there were 4,000 professors in attendance representing, at a minimum, 20,000 years of Ph.D. research. Martin Marty, the Fairfax M. Coyne Distinguished Professor of History of the History of Modern Christianity from the University of Chicago, addressed this gathered audience of brilliant men and women with these words. Never in the history of Christianity has more brain power been assembled in one room than when Jonathan Edwards sat alone in his study. The vast audience erupted in laughter. They applauded, recognizing that the greatest minds together cannot stand up to the brilliance of a single individual. 
We've, of course, seen this in our study of Luke's Gospel, in particular Luke chapter 20, right? When, when Jesus is standing alone against all the greatest minds in Israel, and one after another, they come to attack Him. Pharisees, scribes, elders, Sadducees, uh, Herodians, they all come after Jesus, and Jesus deflects them with ease until finally we read in verse 40, uh, chapter 20, they no longer dared to ask Him any questions. Finally, they're left silent. It may be the movie I saw this weekend, but their, their arguments are like, are bullets bouncing off Superman's chest, right? They can't penetrate Jesus at all. In fact, the more they question Him, the more they reveal their own ignorance and Jesus' brilliance. And finally, they said, enough. No more questions for this man. But Jesus, He has a question. And now that the, their offense is over, Jesus no longer plays defense, and He goes on the offensive And He reveals to us who He truly is. I think before us we have a a wonderful and powerful passage that answers the question, who did Jesus think He was? And He will reveal to us His glory. And once He raises that question, He then begins to put His finger upon our chest and says, how will you live in light of who I am? And so let's first consider this morning... The Messiah's glory. Who is Jesus? What is His majesty? And you see there in the the first portion of our passage, four truths that reveal to us who is Jesus. First of all, we see that the Messiah is David's son. As you note in verse 41. But He said to them, How can they say that the Christ, or that's the Greek word for Messiah, is David's son? Now, the Jews were all expecting a Messiah. There's some debate over what the Messiah would do. But the one thing that they all agreed on is that the Messiah or the Christ would be the son of David. That is, he would be in the lineage of David. In fact, in Matthew's account of this event, Jesus asked them, whose son will the Messiah be? They all answer David. And, and, and they believe this because God, years ago, centuries ago, said to David what we now call the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel chapter 7, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. So they said, David, you're going to have a son. He'll he'll be the king forever. The prophets will pick up on this over and over again. They'll say to this and not to kind of fast forward into next month. But Isaiah does say, as you will hear in December, for unto us a child is born, a son is given and on the throne. He shall sit on the throne of David uh, uh, and over his kingdom. So, so the Messiah will come in the lineage of David. And, and Luke's already told us, of course, this over and over again, that Jesus is David's son. We re- recognize in early Luke that uh, Joseph is identified as of the house of David. The angel Gabriel said to Mary that God will give her a son and he will sit on the throne of his father David. At his birth, we're told again, he was of the house and lineage of David. So Jesus is David's son. He has become one of us. Jesus is human. And therefore, He has personal knowledge, experiential knowledge of all the troubles and difficulties of the human life. Do not forget in all of our exaltation of our Lord that He was one of us and is one of us. He normal human. He was completely human, I should say, to such a point you couldn't even pick him out of the crowd. That's why 
when Judas goes to betray him, he tells the guards, hey, listen, the one we're looking for is the one I kiss. Right? Why doesn't Judas say the one we're looking for is six foot two, he's wearing a sash, he's got blue eyes and feathered hair, right? He's the European amongst all the Jewish people. That's the guy we're looking for. Go get him, right? He's the guy with a halo. He's kind of elevating a couple inches off the ground. Go get that guy. No, he says, you can't pick him out of the crowd, so I'll go up and kiss him. That's the one. See, Jesus it looked like us because he became one of us, and therefore you can trust him. As the Bible says, in the midst of your troubles and trials in this life, go to one who has been tempted in every way, as you and I have been tempted to find help in your time of need, Scripture tells us. So the Messiah is David's son. But if the Messiah is David's son, how do you explain Psalm 110? Which Jesus goes on to quote, as you see in verse 42. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord. What we see here is that number two, the Messiah is David's Lord. Not just David's son, but David's Lord. And and, uh, Dave came up and read for us this morning Psalm 110 in its entirety. It clearly is this messianic psalm. Like a, a little bit of trivia for you this morning of, of the 929 chapters in the Old Testament, which chapter is quoted most in the New Testament? Well, Psalm 110. In fact, of all the verses quoted from the Old Testament, which verse is quoted more than any other verse? Is Psalm 110, verse 1, which is quoted or alluded to over 30 times in the New Testament. In other words, what Jesus is about to teach has such a powerful impact upon his apostles that when they wanted to explain who Jesus was, Psalm 110 became their go-to verse to explain who he was. So here we are, Psalm 110. It's a Psalm of David. Jesus says as much in verse 42. David himself says in the book of Psalms. And then he goes on to, to quote. And look what he says. The Lord said to my Lord. So you have two lords. The first Lord is Yahweh. And they, of course, the Jews would not translate the name Yahweh. They just translate it as Lord. And so you have Yahweh, God Almighty, says to my Lord. Now that's David speaking. So the Lord, Yahweh, David says, says to my Lord. So who's David calling his Lord? Well, the Messiah. The rest of the psalm is very clear. And so what David's doing is he's, in some sense, listening to a conversation between God Almighty and the coming Messiah. And and so we say, okay, what's the big deal, right? We've We've already established that the Messiah is David's son. So here's the question. If the Messiah is David's son, why is David now calling the Messiah my Lord? In fact, that's what Jesus says and asks in verse 44. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, how can he be both David's son and David's Lord? What kind of dad calls his son my Lord? Now, I love my boys. I gladly lay down my life for my boys. But you will not ever hear me say now or ever, my Lord Josiah. Right? My Lord Gideon. Lord Ezekiel. That will not come from my mouth. It's not going to happen. right? right? And, and if we don't do that now, how much more in a patriarchal society where honor is everything? And honor is always paid to the, to the older. It's to the, to the parents. It's why we have the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is how children should relate to their parents. Children, obey your parents. 
the Bible says. We don't have any commandment that says parents do this for your children. God is always teaching that honor goes from the younger to the older, from the child to the parent. I see my brother Glenn sitting over here. A couple years ago, Glenn and I and Dave, we went to Ghana there. I think it was on your 86th birthday, was it not, Glenn? I should have asked you before I told this story. Sorry about that. But but, uh, Glenn is there in Ghana, and uh, Glenn is so old, right? They are... They are nearly bowing to Glenn. I mean, they are in awe that people, you don't live to 86 in Ghana. And they are just uh, amazed at this. And there's all this reverence given to Glenn. And here you sit here and we'll help you over here. And there's this constant honor being attributed to him. That's what we see in an honor-based society, in a patriarchal society. And, and in fact, this is not just a patriarchal society, but we're talking about a monarch in a patriarchal society. And not just any monarch, but the great king gave it in a patriarchal society calling his son my lord and so jesus asked how can king david submit to a descendant how can he be both his son and his lord and there is of course only one answer is that the messiah is not just david's son but he is also god's son he's not less than the son of david but he's far more than that he's the son of god that jesus is both human and divine, which is why Jesus would say in Revelation chapter 22, I am both the root and the descendant of David, right? I'm the root. I'm David's creator and I'm his descendant. I am David's son. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. I think this is an interesting passage for you to consider That Jesus understood himself as divine. This is not something that the church added later. It's not something Paul came up with. One of the earliest records of Jesus' teaching, he taught that he was more than a mere man. He taught that he was God in the flesh. And so maybe you're tempted to think, well, Jesus is just a good teacher, or he's just a wise man, or just a rabbi of that day. Well, how do you explain Psalm 110? How would you answer Jesus' question? What, in other words, what else could Jesus try, be trying to say if not that he himself is God in the flesh? And for us Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to notice how often Jesus uses the Bible in his defense. It's just over and over and over again, continually going back to Scripture. And we've even seen this just consider Luke 20. Remember, he's already quoted Psalm 118 saying the the stone that is rejected will become the chief cornerstone. And then he went on to quote Exodus chapter 3, that I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now he's quoting Psalm 110 here. He's constantly explaining God's word. He's constantly teaching them what it means. He takes the word and says, let me tell you about it. This is how God reveals himself to us. It's why every week we gather together and let someone explain to us the word of God. We see it from Jesus, right? That we understand this to be a revelation of God. That we might know God through His Word. And Jesus reveals to, himself, reveals to us and to those around Him that He is not just David's Son, but He is David's Lord. The Messiah is David's Lord. Thirdly, consider, well, He must be our Lord as well. The Messiah is our Lord. In fact, if you were to ask me, you know, give me Christianity in three words, I would, could think of no better than saying Jesus is Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10.9, as you know, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Scripture explains as well in 1 Corinthians 12, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And how many times do we see in Scripture the Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ? He is Lord. Not Jesus is nice, not Jesus is helpful, not Jesus is friendly, not Jesus is unconditional love, not Jesus is wise, not Jesus is useful. I mean, all that's true, of course, but but the, the heart of Christianity is that He is Lord. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, do not let that become so familiar to you that it loses its meaning. In fact, I think we could spend sermons considering what does it mean that He is Lord. But at the very least, it means He is in authority over you. And as Lord, you obey Him. You submit to Him. Even if He tells you to do something you don't like, or He explains something's true which you wish were not, you don't say no to the Lord. You don't judge Him based upon your own experiences. You don't evaluate His teaching based upon what our culture is saying at its current time or what's on the right side of history or what, what, what your friends are doing. You don't say, well, that can't be right because our culture says it's not. That can't be right because it doesn't fit with what my friends are doing. No, we don't care, if you will, what the culture says and what our friends say. Ultimately, it comes down to this fact Jesus is Lord, and so we obey and believe what He has taught. He is our Lord, no matter how strange or hard His teaching may be. In fact, I would say fourth and lastly on this first point, the Messiah not only is our Lord, He is the Lord. You notice He doesn't end His quotation with the Lord said to my Lord. I mean, that's His point. That's clear from verse 44, but he goes on to give us a little bit more of Psalm 110. We read, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Christ will soon be put to death. Just a matter of days. This is Tuesday. He'll be arrested in two days, crucified in three. But he will not stay dead. Within three days, as he has told repeatedly over and over again, as the Old Testament had testified to, he will rise from the dead and not just rise to this earth, though he'll stay here for 40 days, he will eventually rise to the right hand of God the Father, as the psalmist proclaimed. And at the right hand of God the Father, he will defeat all of his enemies. He will put his enemies under his feet as a footstool. You see, Jesus is both suffering servant and triumphant king. We often talk about how the Jews are expecting this conqueror, right? The Messiah will come and conquer and he'll kick out the Roman oppressors and he'll reestablish the throne of David and the, the majesty of Israel and he will reign there. And, and we say, well, this is what the Jews were expecting. This is why they missed Jesus. And we kind of look at them, don't we, when their expectation, you know, we look at them with unprecedented freedom as we sip our Starbucks and drive our cars to the shopping mall and think, well, those people certainly were bloodthirsty, weren't they? Violent people wanting a conquering king. We know better. Jesus is a suffering servant. Of course, He is. But I wonder if they had the opportunity, they might look at us and say, well, you don't really care much about justice, do you? You don't really care about the plight of the oppressed, do you? That you don't long for a triumphant king. 
to undo injustice and evil and set everything right. I want you to understand that we praise God that He is a suffering servant. But when He returns, He comes as King. When He comes back, He is not coming to give everyone a hug. He is coming to put down His enemies. He is coming to end evil. And all those who will refuse His grace, refuse the mercy that He extends to all who are willing at this time, and those who continue to refuse Him, He will come as their judge and as their king. He will come not as their Savior, but as the Lord. And on that day, everyone will acknowledge who He is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is... What is it? Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. So when He asks you to receive Him as your Lord, He's not asking for you to give Him a position in which He does not have. He is not asking for your vote. Right? Whether you believe it or not, He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And what matters for you and your eternal destiny is to whether you have bowed to Him as your King and surrendered your life to Him. And if you have, if you have given your life over to King Jesus, your life will look differently. You will begin to live for Him and His majesty. And if you haven't, you will begin, or you will continue, I should say, to live for yourselves as we see in these religious leaders who are living for their own glory. My second main point this morning is that there are some who live for their own glory. Look in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. Now stop there for a moment. Notice that uh, what Jesus is about to do is about to warn his disciples of these religious leaders. These same individuals who have assaulted him. But he does it in the hearing of all the people. See, there's two groups in verse 45. There's all the people and his disciples. So I mean, he's going to talk to his disciples, but he's making sure all the people can hear them. In other words, he's talking to these in front of these religious leaders so that they might hear the truth in which Jesus gives the warning, the rebuke. He wants them to understand it. And he's going to rebuke them. It is going to be severe, and it's going to be very easy for you and I to look at them and think, man, those guys were a bunch of losers. Right? I'm glad I'm not like them. That will be your temptation. It is my temptation. Don't allow yourself to do that. Even now, ask God, show me my heart. Show me where I fail. Don't make me judge. Let your word examine me that I might see the sin in my own life, that I might turn from it. What Jesus explains here, there are three ways in which these men, and I think you and I are tempted to live for our own glory. The first being they love The praise of others. Consider verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts. You could always recognize a scrobe in this day. They'll be wearing their distinctive white linen robes that would come down to their feet. Now, I don't think, to be honest, uh, there's anything wrong with wearing a robe, I suppose. I think probably men should wear pants, to be perfectly honest, but it was, that's their culture. They're wearing robes. The prodigal son, of course, is given 
the best robe to put on. There's nothing wrong with robes. What's wrong, I think, is that they loved it. They loved the recognition that it got. Ken Hughes says they're like ecclesiastical swans regally gliding among the common mud hens of humanity. So they dressed up and they got their ego stroked out of it. Now, what, what about us, by the way? I, one of the things I appreciate about Hamilton Baptist Church is some of you come here on Sunday morning and you're casually dressed, you look comfortable. Others, like myself, have a jacket on and a tie. Is Jesus saying something about us? Do I look, in, look at pastor, he's got a pocket square this morning. Right? Is that what he's saying? I'm not, I'm not sure that's how we should apply this. That what Jesus is saying is we all should dress casually. Or, 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 or non-formally. Though there's no problem, I think, with dressing casually. But I, I think, I want to be clear, that some people choose to dress up on Sunday morning or just more formally. And I can't speak for them, but for myself, I do so in order to help my soul. Not to impress you, but to, to impress upon me that what I'm going to do on Sunday morning is different than any other thing I do during that week. And perhaps I would say the most important thing that I do during the week. So the very act of simply tying a tie or ironing a shirt helps my heart be prepared to approach my king shoulder to shoulder with you. Now, you, now, now putting a tie on for you may have the exact opposite of impact. And so I, I think all of us should consider how it is that we mark off Sunday morning as valuable and important. And that's going to look differently for uh, different individuals. The problem with what they're doing is that they're dressing up not to, not to impress their own heart, to draw them near to God, but to, to impress other people. In fact, it's seen that they love these public greetings, don't they? The, the public greetings, greetings in the marketplace. The tradition was in this day, if a scribe would walk by and you would see him, you would actually rise to your feet, almost as if a commanding officer had entered into the room, and you would greet them, master, teacher, rabbi. Now again, I don't, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with these type of honorific titles. Paul, after all, would write his letters, the Apostle Paul. Jesus would be repeatedly called Rabbi. I don't think there's anything wrong with respecting others. But I think, however, the problem is, is this what's happening is they're getting their ego stroked by it. In fact, before we moved up to Loudoun County four years ago, I, I pastored a church in a, in a town of 400 people. In fact, the whole county didn't have a stoplight in it. In fact, they, they just added a county, so they're pretty, uh, added, added a stoplight, so they're pretty excited about that. It was very, very rural, and I don't know if anybody's grown up in a small kind of country environment, but everybody knows everybody. And so you'll be in the grocery store, the gas station, and people that you may know their face but don't know their name they say hey hey pastor how are you good to see you pastor and people you've never met somehow know your pastor it's nice to see you pastor pastor this pastor that why are you in the back of the line pastor come on up to the front of the line pastor right one of the things i don't like about Loudoun county is i don't get to go to the front of the line right i like the rest i can stand in line like everybody but you know i i don't i don't i don't think they were disobeying god in this and honoring me or trying to honor me in this way you could call me pastor if you like i also respond to stephen however so just to let you know about that but i i think what they wanted to do is that they they they, we want to honor people there's nothing wrong with that what's wrong with that is we can begin to live for it don't you understand who i am where's my greeting why aren't you rising in my presence in fact they they love the best seats jesus tells us there in verse 46 
They go to the feast. They, they don't, I don't know what your feast was like at uh, Thanksgiving, but we did not fit our family and extended family. We don't fit around one table. So we, the adult table and you got the kid table, right? Do you have that? And sometimes you set up the card table and you put the fancy tablecloth over it. Well, these guys do not want to sit at the card table, right? They want to be at the head of the table there at the feast or at the synagogue. In fact, the, the early church based its architecture off the architecture of the synagogue at that time. And it's very similar to what you even see here. In an ancient synagogue, you would have benches, right? Just like we have pews. But up front, you would have these chairs or these thrones. And the, the elders and the scribes, they would come sit on them and they would face the congregation. That was a way... To honor them, it reminded of a me reminds me of a mission trip I took years ago to a little island in the Pacific Ocean called Tana, and I was there to, to one of the the churches I went to. I was going to preach the word, and they have a tradition that once everyone gathers in, the the pastor and the elders stay outside, and everybody's in, and and someone will come in, and they will they will announce in a loud loud voice, preacher, and then everybody will rise. And you parade down the middle and you sit up front on your throne facing the congregation. Now, I didn't particularly care for that. I like to be down with you and singing with you and praying with you, right? But the Pharisees, they would have loved that. And of course, I understand there are some American cultures that, that continue, churches continue to do that, right? We got our thrones over there. I'm glad they're empty. Uh, to be perfectly honest, but that's okay. Some people want to honor their elders that way. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's when we begin to live for it, when we begin to, where's my best seat? I want the best seat. In fact, in our context, the best seat are the ones in the back, aren't they? Right? Those are the seats of honor here. The front, that's the seats of disgrace and shame, right? Oh, good morning, Dawn. It's good to see you, right? Uh, you know, we don't want to sit there. We want to sit in the back, right? So, what they're doing is they, they're living for that. They crave the recognition. You can kind of understand why they can't see Jesus and His glory because they're so occupied with their own. They're so enamored with their own majesty that they can't see that of God. And my friends, I think we struggle with the same sin. Right? You may not want the best seats. You, you, you may not want the fancy robes that distinguish you or whatever. But it's very easy to live for other people's praise. It's very easy to walk in a room and think, okay, who can bless me? Who can serve me? And, and instead of walking in a room, you think, I already have everything I need in Jesus. I have Christ's approval. I have Jesus' love. And I walk in thinking, who can I bless? Who needs a word of encouragement? Who, who can I go and minister to? I think if we have Christ, we'll, we'll become self-forgetful. And it will free us from seeking our own honor that we could go around honoring other people. I don't know. You've met those people, haven't you? And we all struggle with this. who are just kind of in this prison of self-absorption and constantly judging how they're perceived. What do people think of me? And what, am I, what do they think about what I'm wearing? What do they think about my children? And, uh, you know, I want to look impressive. We need to be vigilant against this desire to impress other people. Rest in Christ's approval. You don't have to manipulate other people to get theirs. These men loved the praise of others, even, even though they didn't deserve it. As you see, they lived as fakes. Look what Jesus says in verse 47. He says, who devour widows' houses and for a 
pretense make long prayers. They, they pray long for the sake of appearance, Jesus says. They're not praying to, to, to impact God. They're praying to impact other individuals. And so they'll pray long because it makes them look spiritual and godly even though they're not. In other words, they're not only proud, they're hypocrites. Right? They, they pray for show. Now I'll tell you, there's nothing, once again, there's nothing wrong with long prayers. If you, if you think there might be, read your Bible. You will find long prayers. And even, even now, we have in our church a pastoral prayer where one of our elders prays. And often they pray for six minutes, eight minutes, sometimes ten minutes. That's intentional. We want to gather. And one of the reasons we're doing is we want to gather to pray to God. And you might even notice that some of these pastoral prayers are thought out in advance. Maybe even written down. And you might be tempted, especially if you come from a lifelong Baptist circle, to think, okay, it's thought out, therefore it's not sincere. And I would challenge that. I would think, I would challenge the idea that thought out and considered beforehand does not mean insincere, just as much as spontaneous often doesn't mean sincerity. We encourage one another to think out what we will pray beforehand because we are not having our quiet times when we stand as one of the shepherds of this flock and lead us to the throne of God in prayer. We want to pray on behalf of God's people. And, and so we pray. We think it out beforehand. And we lead us to God. But please understand, just because we're praying long, we're not praying to impress you. Our prayers are aimed at our God and our Lord and that God might take note. These men are praying long for a pretense. They're, as we call, hypocrites. And Jesus is saying, beware of hypocrisy. And I know in the church context, we talk a lot about hypocrisy. I think there's some confusion as to what hypocrisy is. So please understand, hypocrisy is not doing something you don't feel like doing. That is not hypocrisy. That's called maturity. Okay? That's called faithfulness. Right? So you wake up Sunday morning, you think, I don't feel like going to church. Well, I better not because I won't be a hypocrite. I don't want to be a hypocrite. That's not hypocrisy. That's staying, that, not doing something even though you don't feel, even though it, it's right because you don't feel like it. That's immaturity. We are to do what is right even when our heart is not in it and hope that our heart comes. Pray God, help my heart to come along. A hypocrite is trying to get people to think you're something that you're not. It's putting on a a persona that people think you're better than you actually are. And all of us, I think we're all susceptible to this sin because it's so much easier to fake godliness than to actually be godly, isn't it? And, and if we value godliness, we will be tempted to fake it. You know how you fight against hypocrisy? You take the mask off. You open up. You confess your sin. You expose yourself. That's, that's, why, that's why I think the church is so important in your life. And the church is not a series of 
scheduled programs to provide religious services to you. The church is a community of people following Christ together that we can be open with one another and share our struggles with one another. The church is not a gas station that you come to once a week and get filled up so you could go live the rest of your week and we'll see you again next Sunday. The church is a place where you are to intertwine your lives through one another. And help each other fight against the hypocrisy in our heart. That you open up and confess your sins to one another. And when you do, you'll find that sin loses its power on you. You'll find freedom in being open. I so much appreciate Robert's testimony last Sunday night at our Thanksgiving service. As he shared the struggle of what it, the, the battle in his heart to, to open up and to take the mask off. And tell everyone he is, he is not what they think he is. And yet once he did that, the freedom that followed. And so I would encourage you to find people in this church. Invite individuals out for coffee or join a Sunday school class or a community group. Ask a mature member in the church to disciple you that you might share with one another your heart. You might pray for each other and push one another on towards Christ's likeness. Well, the third way in which these individuals are living for their own glory is they are destroying the vulnerable. And Jesus says as much there in verse 47 when he says they devour widows' houses. So they're, notice they're proud, they're hypocritical, and they're greedy. Widows in this day, along with orphans, will be the most vulnerable of anyone in this society or any ancient society. They often have no means of supporting themselves, often dependent upon charity. It's why the Bible continually explains that widows and orphans are to be special objects of care and protection by God's people. But these individuals, these religious leaders, rather than protecting widows in, in their distress, they devour them. They take from the individuals who are most in need. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us how it is they're devouring widows' houses, but I think it's probably easy to imagine that Perhaps they're offering to manage what wealth the widow has. You know, I'll take care of it. I'll make sure you have everything you need. And, of course, then skimming off for themselves. Or maybe they're finding the naive and saying, you know, for a little money in exchange, I'll give you some special blessing or, you know, special prayer. This obviously was not just something that happened then. It continues to happen now as the elderly are often the prey of scammers who are often pastors, right? Just turn on the television. You'll find some guy with a jar of water. You know, this jar of water is taken straight from the Jordan River. and It's been anointed with special prayers and already people have experienced miraculous healings from just consuming it. And it can be yours for the donation of just a $100 seed money. You know, you have to take that step of faith, don't you? And go ahead and it's okay if you can't afford it. God will come behind and bless you. And by the way, if you have $200, we have this special prayer cloth that's been anointed with olive oil from the promised land. And in other people's lives, it's brought about financial reversal. Go ahead and just send us your money. Put your hands on the screen, right? And we'll pray for you and this blessing and all these hucksters and these scammers are stealing and praying from the, the from the, the disadvantaged and the defenseless. All the while, their diamond cufflinks get bigger and bigger, right? And Jesus, it makes him angry. You notice how he ends in verse 47. They will receive the greater condemnation. They who do this 
If they do not repent of their sin, will be condemned, Christ says. One day, Jesus will come and He will put all His enemies under His feet and He wants them to know how badly it's going to go, not just for sinful people, but for religious people who live this way. And before you celebrate, you know, get them, Jesus! My brothers and sisters, look at your own heart. Check your own heart. Christ here says, condemnation is coming. It's coming. And the only, there's one way to avoid it, only one way. And it's to be united to Jesus by faith. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has come, He's lived a perfect life, He has died upon the cross in our stead, in our place, to pay our debt, rose from the dead three days later, and Scripture says if you will submit your life to Him, place your faith in Him, yielding yourself to Him, He will wash away all your sins, credit you with His righteousness, and welcome you into His presence. That you and I will not be condemned, not because of our goodness, but because we are in Christ Jesus, because of His goodness. That's the invitation to all of us. Those in Christ Jesus, will not live like these men live. They'll, they'll live for not their own glory, but for Jesus' glory, for God's glory, as He moves on to consider this beautiful counterexample in a sacrificial widow. Consider third and last this morning, living for His glory or God's glory. Look in chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. This offering box was one of 13 boxes in the temple courtyards. They were brass, and they were uh, brass chests in the shape of, a, of an inverted horn. They were actually called trumpets. So they were large at the bottom, and they were narrow at the top. And what happened is be- giving became a show. Right? Back in this day, you didn't put your check in the envelope and turn it upside down and put it discreetly in the offering plate. You walked up into the temple courtyard and you walked up to one of these, these boxes, these trumpets, and you put in one coin at a time and the sound was amplified in this brass chest as the coins fell on the chest below. Giving was slow and loud. And it's very easy to spot the rich, you know, with their bags of coins over their shoulders, making a spectacle. Back then, they did not have three-foot checks standing next to children in wheelchairs. And so what they did is they grabbed these chests that were too heavy to carry, and everyone turns as the shekels crash onto one another in one of these brass trumpets, and everyone kind of looks and notices, everyone except Jesus. Who had eyes for someone else, as you see in verse 2. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. You could imagine this widow approaching one of these trumpets quietly with her head bowed, trying to be discreet. There's two small copper coins, or lepta in the Greek. It was the smallest currency they had. Lepta means thin or light. And she would put in these coins, which would be of a value in today's less than a dollar, maybe 75 cents, maybe less. And down they fell, so light 
You could hardly hear them hit the coins below. But Jesus watches and He calls for His disciples. And He says, let me show you someone who's giving. And I can imagine them all turn to one of these rich guys with their bags and all the rest. And He says, no, no, I don't want you to look at them. I want you to look at this widow. And this widow who, who gave her 75 cents. Notice what He says about her in verse 3. And He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Compared to all the rest, you wait, take all what they gave, put it in one pile. And you take this widow's two lepta and you put it in the other. And Jesus says, she gave more. And He explains what He means in verse 4. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. They gave out of their wealth. They gave that which didn't cost them anything. She gave them out of, out of her poverty. In fact, she gave up everything Jesus ha- says that she had to live on. She keeps nothing for themselves. So the point that Jesus is making is not what they gave, but what they gave up. She gave up all. The point is not what, what they put in. The point is what they kept. And she kept nothing. Now you think about this. I mean, what difference does 75 cents make? The temple's still going to make budget, right? The priests will still receive their salary. The lights will stay on. The missions will be funded. Nothing would have changed if she kept her money. The temple is no richer because she gave. And she is tremendously poorer because she did. So what's the point? Well, you see what Jesus is driving at. It's her heart. So I want you to see her heart. You know how you have gauges on your car, oil gauge, and you have the, 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 you know, the temperature gauge and the gas gauge. And all these gauges do, they reveal what's hidden from you. You can't see how much oil you have, but the gauge tells you. Well, money is like that. Giving is like that. It reveals our heart. Our heart is hard to see, but money reveals it. And, and, and in fact, if we look at our giving, money will show whether we're living for God's glory or we're, we're captured by our own. In fact, your love is seen in your giving. It, it, your love is seen in your giving. If you say, I love you, Lord, but I just don't give like you call me to, that doesn't make sense. It'd be like saying, I love my family, I just don't feed them. Okay? You say, well, I think I might question your love then. Right? I love the Lord, but I will not give to His causes. Your love is revealed in your giving. And I wonder, parents, what are you teaching your children about giving? Especially as Christmas approaches. Will you teach your children the joy of giving or just the joy of getting? How are you going to help them during this time? How are you going to navigate their heart so that they realize that giving is, is what Christ has modeled? Talk to them about your giving, what you're doing, how you're planning. And, and ex- talk to them about their giving. By the way, I thank God that there are so many generous people here. Please do not hear me otherwise. I've experienced that in my own life. I know many other people have experienced the generosity of this church. Now, this widow clearly shows her great love for God. I love the story that Phil Riken tells when he was at Westminster Seminary. There was a frame uh, in the lobby of Mason Hall. And in that frame was a letter from an attorney, and it read, Fanny Mulder was called to glory on October 20th, 1987. 
in a letter from her attorney, we learned that she had only the following personal property in her possession when she died. And then the notice goes on to list what she had. She had clothes. She had six robes, two sweaters, 19 hospital gowns, one pair of slippers, five pairs of socks, plus two singles. Then lists their personal property. She had a purse, a mirror, an old thimble, a broken radio, a toothbrush, a comb, some soap, and some reading glasses. Her reading glasses were to help her read one of her two Bibles and her hymnal. And in addition, she had some money. She left when she died a dime and two pennies. She wrote up a will. And she left her money to the seminary. And that that dime and two pennies are displayed in that seminary as a lasting testimony of a woman who truly loved God and gave her all. Your love is seen in your giving. But so is your faith, isn't it? Your faith is seen in your giving. Right? I, you know this temple, what she's giving to, is going to be torn down in 40 years. It's not there. It's been gone for 2,000 years. Right? God's not glorified in the fact she helped build the temple. God's glorified because she trusted him. Right? And she gave everything. And you wonder, well, what, will she, what will she eat? Does she know what she's going to eat next? And we, we don't know. All we know is that she evidently believes God's going to take care of her. In fact, I think her giving's unreasonable, to be honest. If, I mean, if, if this weren't in the Bible and some widow came up to me and says, you know, I got, uh, this is what I have left. I'm thinking of giving it all to the church. I would say, no, don't do that. It's not wise. Keep that for yourself. Right? It's only in the fact in the Bible that we're, we're convicted. I mean, there are so many questions this raises. I don't know how to answer. But what I do know is that this woman trusts in God. She has a big God. And my question for you is, how's your trust in God reflected in your giving? When, when the plates went by earlier today, at the very least, when you put that envelope in, were you thinking, Lord, I want to give this to you? I, I want to, I'm giving this to you because I trust you. And I know you will take care of me. This is how I want to worship you. Uh, it's not just simply for the church and for the church to do this and that, though it's that, but it is simply my way of expressing that I believe you will take care of me. Her trust was seen in her giving. Her love was seen in her giving. And lastly, your hope is seen in your giving. Your giving shows what you long for, what you live for. This woman, I think, clearly has a hope of a better life. It's interesting we come to this passage this time of year. Right? You made it through Black Friday. We all survived, I hope. Right? Small Business Saturday. We got Cyber Monday coming up. The stores are full. The deals are everywhere. There are lots of opportunities to spend money, right? And many Americans are going to give to churches. In fact, Americans will give billions of dollars to churches this year or roughly the same amount that Americans will spend on their pets or about two-thirds what Americans will spend on weight loss programs or about one-fifteenth of what Americans spend on gambling. As disposable income has increased in America, charitable giving has declined. And meanwhile, I will tell you, there are people ready to give their lives for the cause of missions. There are people who are ready. We will take our families to far and difficult places if there are just the resources available. There are ministries ready to serve if if, if Christians would just support them. Next week, we're going to begin our offering, our month-long offering for international missions. 
I hope you're praying about how your hope is seen in your giving. This, this woman clearly hoped in God. Her hope was not in luxury. And I, in fact, I would tell you, the Scripture will tell us that simplicity with a love for Christ will bring far more happiness than a life of luxury. She gave because she loved God and she trusted God and she hoped God and therefore she gave sacrificially. She gave out of her poverty. This woman knew want. She knew what need was and it didn't stop her. You know, she gave. In fact, she had two coins. She gave both. I find that interesting. Why well, we keep one for yourself at least. No, but she says, I love you, Lord. Right? Here's my life, Lord. And it's not much, but it's all I have and I want to give it to you. In fact, that's literally what Jesus says there at the end of verse 4. You notice it says she put... She put in all she had to live on. It's a difficult phrase to translate. It literally says she put in her bios, which is the word for which we get life. So the literal reading of that is she put in her life. And the translators, I guess, don't know what to do with that and say, well, what you must mean is that she put in all she had to live on. But I wonder if Jesus means more than that. She, She gave him everything. Putting my life into your hands. I surrender. It was in 1859, story I'd like to share with you as we close this morning, that Charles Blondin, a tightrope walker, went across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope with 10,000 people watching. It's a huge event in 1859. In fact, they were so amazed, his manager pulls him aside and says, we have to do this again. We've got to bring him out next week. But we can't just do the same thing. You have to do a stunt. And so Blondin says, okay, come back next week. I'm going to do a stunt. And they came back next week. And again the next week. And again the next week. Right? One week he would go across Niagara Falls on a tightrope with a sack of flour on his head. The next week he would ride a bike across his tightrope over the Niagara Falls. Uh, he, uh, he would stand on his head on the tightrope. He would do somersaults all the way across on the tightrope. There's one, one day he even took out a wheelbarrow, put a fire in the wheelbarrow, went out on the middle of the tightrope over the raging falls, cooked an omelet and ate it there on the tightrope over Niagara Falls. It was amazing, right? And people kept coming out uh, week after week. Well, summer's getting over and the poor man's running out of stunts, right? He says, you know, we need to do one more. What we're going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry someone across on my shoulders across this tightrope over Niagara Falls. Now, you know, that presents a problem, Right? Who in the world is going to get on his shoulders? So he runs an ad in paper. A thousand dollars for someone who will let me carry them over Niagara Falls. Again, this is 1859. That's a lot of money. Scores of people say, we'll do it. They all show up. Blodden walks through them. He weeds them out. You're not the right size. You're not the right strength. You're not the right age. He gets about a dozen or so people that he thinks can do it. And he takes them to the edge of the falls. Right to the edge. Right where it goes cascading hundreds of feet down. And he says, I want to show you something. And he gets up on that tightrope and he walks across the tightrope with ease. And then just turns around and walks back just like you and I are walking on the ground. And then he says, I want to show you something else. And he gets a 200-pound sack. Lifts it on his shoulders. Gets on that tightrope. Walks across. Turns around. Comes back. No problem at all. And he looks at the first person at the edge. uh, Standing there at the edge. And says, do you believe without a doubt, that I could carry you across on this tightrope. And that person says, I believe without a doubt. He asks the next question, next person, the same question. Every single one says, I believe without any doubt that you can carry me across the falls. 
He goes back to the next person and says, I'll give you $1,000 if you will let me do it. And that person says, not on your life. Right? Next person, no chance. Next person, no chance. And every single one of them says, I'm not going to do it. It's interesting to me because they all intellectually believe that he can do it, but they will not put their life in his hands. Well, the day of event comes, and there's not 10,000 people there, but there is 100,000 people. And he looks to his, mass, uh, his, his uh, uh, manager, Harry, and says, Harry, it's got to be you. Harry does not want to do this. He gets on blood and shoulders, and across the tightrope they go, Harry's terrified. They're halfway across, which is the place where it sways the most, and they start swaying. And it sways one way, and Harry leans the other way, and then Blondin leans the other way to balance it out, and then they sway, they overbalance, and they sway. sway. It's not going as planned. This is not working well. And Blondin, over the raging water below him, yells out, Harry, till I clear this place, you must become part of me mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you must rest completely and sway completely with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go down to our death. In other words, if you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself. You must completely rest in me You must put your life in my hands. That's what it means to be a Christian. I put my life in. I put it all in, Jesus. I trust you completely. Just as that widow came up and says, I I give you my life. I'm putting it in. You say, what would compel me to do that? Well, Jesus, in referring to this widow, I believe is preparing his disciples for what he is about to give. Don't you think in seeing her gift is simply a foreshadow, a dim picture of what he is about to give? That that as she gave her life, as she kept nothing for himself on the cross, when Jesus is nailed there, he would give up everything He would put his life in the box and keeping nothing for himself. When David's Lord became David's son in order to give his life away for you. And now in light of that glory, in light of his gift for you, will you not therefore delight in living for his, resting completely in him? Our Father in heaven, help us today to see the glory of Christ. Show us His majesty. That we, our hearts may be freed from the applause of this world and the things of this world. That having Christ is enough. And that we indeed would live for His renown.